And we are back. Welcome to the Real Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jacob O'Connor. Real Conversations is a podcast for those dedicated to doing hard things and living a meaningful life. This belief is perhaps best encapsulated by a quote from the great Teddy Roosevelt. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, nor where the doer of deeds could have done them better. No, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. With that being said, welcome back to another episode of Real Conversations. And Logan, dude, you are the man in the arena. You're doing the thing. Giving it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the voice of Logan Mize, country music artist, with well north of a billion plays, streams of all of his music across all different platforms. And it is super cool to be with you today, man. Man, thanks, thanks for coming out. I yeah. appreciate you guys being here. Yeah, so we'd actually, John's here too. And uh, we, <laughs> well, if they're listening to the audio, they might not have seen you. Fair enough. But we'd been listening to your music and uh, didn't really know who you were too much. You just kind of a name on a song. And one of our friends, Rachel, had mentioned, like, hey, he's from Kansas. I was like, there's no way. And so we reached out over DM and kind of got this set up. And it's super cool to be here, like, in person doing it. Yeah, hell yeah. Thanks for being here. So I want to kind of start off with how did you get into country music or even just singing in general? Like, did you grow up doing that? Was it a family thing or how'd you get into it? Man, I, so my, my mom kind of coerced me into piano lessons when I was six or seven. And I wasn't necessarily like, uh, raging to get into it, but I had an, uh, it was like, a that compressor out there is going to go on and off just so you know, <laughs> um, it runs a liquor store next door. But, uh, I had this double disc greatest hits of Elton John album and I listened to it over and over and over. I just couldn't stop listening to it. I loved all his songs. I loved it more than anything music wise. Um, mom was into like Aerosmith, Zeppelin, all that, but the Elton John double disc, I couldn't get enough of. And so when she mentioned learning piano, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to try it. And, uh, I could barely get through piano lessons. It was just like learning, you know, where the key it just didn't interest me at all so i stuck with it for like maybe six or seven years and then um kind of put it down and then uh when i was maybe 16 or 17 i i went to a concert at the kansas coliseum here and it was kenny chesney and phil vassar and sarah evans and, you know i saw the tour buses and i was like man people can actually like go travel around the country and play music for a living i mean that sounds stupid to say but before in the day before social media, like, you know, you're sitting at home in a town of 2000 people in Kansas. I grew up 40 minutes south of here in Clearwater. Um, and it was like, you didn't realize, I guess I didn't as a kid that you could actually do this for a living. And so, and I'd always had saw I had notebooks full of poetry that I'd written, not good poetry, <laughs> but it was like more, you know, very profane shit that, uh, you don't want your parents to read it. and they did read it but I kind of started putting it to music when I was about 17 and, and I wanted to learn guitar chords uh, so you know I saw Tom Petty play and I was like god how, how do you be that cool right you know? so that's when I started trying to figure out how to learn guitar chords and you know be like Petty and Mellencamp and and all that stuff and so I put four chords together and and uh, immediately wrote four songs before I really knew any covers and I put it on a little uh, disc you know back when you burnt CDs and uh, recorded it at a friend of mine's house and and started passing it out just you know on burnt CDs I bought from Best Buy in Wichita really yeah and people kind of started going like hey you know this is cool and then it started getting passed around and I was going to school, playing football at Southern Illinois and, and uh, passed it around there. And that's when people started kind of going like, oh, you, you got something. And it gave me just enough confidence to not feel like a complete like hack, even though I was, the guitar was out of tune mm -hmm. and everything. So it gave me just enough confidence. And when you're, when you're 19, 20 years old, it's easy to have more confidence than you need to have. You know, I felt way more comfortable than I should have doing it. So I started going to Nashville and I started playing songwriter nights. Monday night in Nashville it was only three hours from where I was going to school in, in Southern Illinois. And that's what started the whole thing. And, and it, Nashville introduced me to all the songwriters. Um, you know, I started learning names like Don Schlitz, Casey Bethard, um, you know, Craig Wiseman, all the people that were writing all the big hits, not only in country music, but other, other genres too. You know, Don Schlitz wrote, you know, all the, you know, Kenny Rogers stuff and, and, uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter. I just loved all those records. And so I just 
kind of believe, tried to believe in myself and put blinders on and went straight forward and barreled into it. So where in Southern Illinois were you going to school? Carbondale. So Southern Illinois, Carbondale was like kind of close to the Kentucky border. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever been through there, but yeah. That's, so we're from Southern Illinois too. Like we're, we're from Columbia. So we have uh, SIUE Southern Illinois. Edwardsville. Edwardsville. Yeah. yeah. That's right next absolutely, to us. Yeah. So I know right, that's kind of crazy. Small world. Yeah, absolutely. I loved that area. I lived there for two and a half years and um, lived on, on and off campus in Carbondale and fell in love with that area. And then if I would if I never would have went to Southern Illinois, I never would have ended up in Nashville. Um, uh -huh. I probably would have went to like New Braunfels, Texas or something like that. But being that close to Nashville and, and being that close to a songwriter community, I was just every chance I got, I was, you know, escaping the college football life and, and going to uh, Nashville. So while you're in college, are you still burning CDs and handing them out or had you picked up more momentum or what did it look like for you? I had that same one that I recorded here in Wichita, the same one. I, it, it had four songs on it and, and I was just, I kept going on those four songs and I'd play frat parties. I wasn't in a fraternity or anything like that, but I knew some frat guys. And so they'd let me come play their frat parties on the picnic table. Um, I'd play the local bars there. There was a bar south of Carbondale, close to Anna, Illinois. I don't know if you know where that's at. Uh, called the Midland. I'd go play down there. I'd sit on the bar, no microphone, nothing. I'd just sit on the bar. And the owner there was really cool. He'd be like, everybody shut up. <laughs> and uh, he would let me sit on the bar and I would just play, sit, stand, whatever, or go sit on the pool table and play songs. And people would get a, like a semicircle of chairs and listen to my songs. And then if I had something new that I'd come up with outside of that four song deal, um, they'd let me play that too. So I would just go. And then if I knew a cover, I'd play that. And it, I just got a bug, man. I didn't necessarily love the attention. I was always nervous. I had to have a lot of drinks before I do it, <laughs> but I love songs. I just love, I'm always just, I've always been a big, like looking, I, I feel like I'm always prowling for good songs. So when you knew that, like you loved music, is that when you decided to go to Nashville full time or what gave you like the conviction? Cause you didn't finish college, right? Mm -hmm. So no. was it kind of just like a whim or did you have some real conviction behind it? It was my junior year and, and it, I was a redshirt freshman at Southern Illinois. So I, I, I actually went to Hutch for like half a semester and then transferred to Southern Illinois, like midway through my freshman year, got redshirted. Um, and then, you know, kind of spent my redshirt freshman year and then the next year, pretty dedicated to school and football. And then it was like halfway through my junior year, sophomore year on the field where I was like, really, I mean, you know, any spare money I had, I was going to buy CDs at the local Blockbuster Music, whatever they had in Carbondale, at Walmart, Target, wherever I could go. And then reading all the album credits and, you know, going to record stores, buying old records and reading the album credits, trying to figure out who was who, trying to figure out who was making records, who was writing the songs. And then I just had the bug so bad, I couldn't even, sleep you know um and then i stopped going to class i'd sit in my dorm room and learn more chords i had chord charts hanging on the walls and i was like okay how do you play an a7 how do you play a d minor you know whatever um and then um it got to the point where i i couldn't even make it to practice you know i would just be sitting there learning new chords writing new songs and then i feel like I, okay i'm doing a disservice to my teammates you know and we were playing Western Michigan. It was the third or fourth game of the season, uh, my junior year, sophomore year on the field. And I got in for like, a, I don't know, maybe 20 snaps against Western Michigan. Sorry, there goes that compressor again. <laughs> um, and the whole time, all I could think about, I'm out there like, you know, I'm playing defensive line. I'm Okay, let's, let's fire off the ball and make a play. And I just felt like the whole time all I could think about was, what's my next, next song idea, you know? And, I don't know. I just didn't feel like I was helping my teammates out. So I wrote every single guy on the defensive line, maybe even the linebackers too. I wrote them all a letter and I said, I'm sorry, I'm letting you down. I'm going to leave. And I wow. quit mid-semester and I didn't have the money to move to Nashville. So I came back here to Sedgwick County and I started framing houses in Wichita to save up money to go to Nashville. Oh my gosh. Were your parents like supportive of this or like, no. what the heck's going well, on? I mean, my parents are cool. <laughs> she had, you know, my parents are cool. They're like, oh, he's being himself again, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think they were always worried, you know? I just kind of always wanted to drift. Oh, I never really wanted to like land on anything. And, um, but I was like, no, this is the one thing I feel like I can really like land on. I'm going to sink this. I'm going to do everything I can 
I was obsessed with it. I still am obsessed with songwriting, obsessed with production. And, and so uh, I worked here eight months. After about eight months framing houses, um, I could still drive you by the addition I framed. I'm surprised it's not toppled over. <laughs> um, I was sick of myself and sick of not pursuing my dreams. And, and uh, so I just up and packed my truck. And, and uh, about three o'clock in the afternoon, one summer afternoon, drove to Nashville and was there for 13 years. Wow. Oh my gosh. Just like that. Yeah. That's cool. Just left. Didn't have any money. The one good thing I did in college, they offered a um, CDL driving class. You could learn how to drive a truck. Right. So I learned how to drive a truck, and, and so I just had a job wherever I went. You know, I was like, oh, I don't have any money. Okay, cool. I'll get a truck driving job. And that's the one thing that's it. <laughs> what was your major in college? Oh, I mean, it switched every semester. Yeah. <laughs> you know, drunk to, you know, you know it was a, it would go from general studies to law enforcement to landscape architecture yeah uh, just everything I, every, I, didn't, I didn't know what i wanted to do besides write songs yeah so you land in nashville i mean are you scared because i feel like i'd be out of my mind I, you don't have really anything booked you just packed up your truck and left no i felt more free than i'd ever felt i felt like oh finally i can breathe you know and i didn't i didn't have a plan but i knew that i was there to do what i was i felt like i was where i was supposed to be so I felt really good about it, and I got a truck driving job immediately. So I was, you know, driving a, a semi truck from uh, a dump truck rather from seven to four every day, hauling sand for bricklayers mostly, um, gravel, rock, whatever, whatever anybody needed for this construction area. And uh, at four, I would get get off, and then I would go downtown to Nashville, and I'd just hit every songwriter's night I could. Start at five, maybe, and then some nights I'd be done at seven, some nights I'd go till two a.m. You know, just hitting every single one of these bars I could hit that would have an open mic. Oh my gosh! So what did it look like when the momentum started to pick up? Like, I'm sure it wasn't right away. Like, how long were you kind of just doing open mic nights? maybe like a year. And then um, I, I met a guy and, and we kind of hit it off. He's from Louisiana, he's a Cajun dude. And, and we kind of like decided to start a band. And um, so we, we rented a, a like a storage facility and we just recruited people on Craigslist, honestly, is what we do. <laughs> like so we need a bass player, find this guy. Or we'd call people from our hometowns. And well, I actually ended up getting two people from Kansas to move there, a guitar player and a drummer. And then he got a guy from Louisiana to move up and play another guitar. And then we found a Texas fiddle player on Craigslist and she came. <laughs> it was just, it was a wild time. And then we'd rehearse in the storage unit. We didn't have any gigs, but we, through all our songs, between my songs and his songs, we probably had 30 songs. And we would just like work them up hours every night. And we'd play, learn to play them live over and over and over and over again. Maybe a, a cover here and there. And then he introduced me to uh, this this duo. It was a guy and a girl, and they were song pluggers, which I didn't know what song pluggers were. Essentially, all the songs you hear on the radio, typically, you know, publishers kind of house all the songs of the songwriters, and they hire song pluggers to go pitch these songs to George Strait or Blake Shelton or, you know, Tim McGraw, whatever. Um, and they would kind of like curate this list of songs. And he's like, I'm going to pay her X amount a month and then she'll go pitch my songs to George Strait, whatever. I was like, that sounds crazy. It sounds like a scam <laughs> to me. You know, I didn't know what a song plugger or a publishing company was. And we went uh, one day because he had a meeting. We were hungover. We'd spent all our money. I was, <laughs> it, was, it was a bad deal. It's um, Nashville. I quit my job and we were kind of like scrapping our money together to make rent, which we didn't, we got evicted, but um, we, <laughs> went, out. We, we, we went down to this uh, meeting with this girl, Amanda, and she was really cool. And she's like, hey, I'm working for this publisher. His name's Brett Jones. Brett had written some songs that I knew, actually one of the first songs I learned how to play in college when I was at Southern Illinois, uh, called You Won't Ever Be Lonely by Andy Griggs. And so, um, she took me into his office and I saw the plaque on the wall. I was like, I know that song. I played that in college for chicks, you know? And um, he's like, oh, how'd that work out for you? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's like, well, play me something you wrote. And so I played him a song. I didn't even know what I was doing in the publishing office. I'm like, I'm still trying to figure out what the fuck all this is, you know? And so I played him a song and he's like, 
what else you got? And so I played, I was just going down my four, the, the four songs in that CD, that <laughs> played all four of them. I had a publishing deal by the end of the day. And he's like, you got to quit all your jobs and you got to write songs full time, but I'll pay you $16,000 a year um, just to write songs. And I was like, oh my God, I'm rich. Yeah, and so I wrote songs and he taught, I wrote with him probably three days a week and he taught me everything there is to know about songwriting. I mean, he's a great songwriter. He signed some of the greatest, you know, songwriters in Nashville still today, Tony Lane. Um, he found Tony Lane. Um, I shouldn't say that Tony Lane was, um, and still is one of the greatest of all time. And David Lee from Texas, um, all those guys, Bobby Pinson, uh, Anthony Smith, they all ran in this circle together. So they were in and out of the house. Dallas Davidson, uh, Luke Bryan was always in and out of there. Billy Currington. So all these guys were just, I was exposed to it at 21 years old and, and you just kind of like, it gets ingrained in you. And, um, that gave me that gave me a lot of knowledge, a lot of information. I got dropped after a year. I was back to weed whacking, uh, another skill that I had from high school. <laughs> and so I was weed whacking ditches for about a year and a half on nothing, scraps. And then I ended up at, at Big Yellow Dog, which is a publishing company I'm still with. I've been with them since 2010. So wow, that's a long time. Yeah. So after you get you get this sixteen thousand dollar a year gig writing songs, I feel like you're kind of like on the cusp, like you're on the way up, you can start to see maybe this is going to work out. After you get dropped, I can only imagine like how that must have felt. Why didn't you pack it in, move home and do something normal? I didn't care, man. And honestly, like failures never bothered me. You know, um, a lot of people get sour, a lot of people get beat up. And I've been through that a little bit. Like when you really feel like, okay, I have something to offer and it doesn't work out, that takes months to get over. But at the time, I didn't feel like I had anything to offer. I really knew it in my heart, like, I'm still learning this. So I didn't feel ever like I got sideways with anybody. I didn't feel like I got, I didn't feel like anything ever bad happened to me. I felt like, oh, I've been fudging my way through this the whole time. <laughs> so when I lost that first publishing deal, it was like, I'm hey, on to the next thing. You know, and I, I walked up and down Music Row. Um, every single publishing company with my little demo tapes. And I had more at that time. They were just like really raw recordings that I'd written in Nashville. Some demos that I'd done at studios, but um, I got turned down by every single publishing company on both sides of the street. So if you've been to Music Row, you know, 16th and 17th Avenue, yeah. and now all the publishing companies are there. Uh, and then Berry Hill, you know, I went through every single one of those publishing companies, maybe two, three times, and they all said, no, come back when you have something better. And I loved it. I was like, yeah, all right, let's write something better. I'll go back to weed whacking ditches and then I'll come back when I have another group of songs, you know? And then finally I went to the big yellow dog. I think it was the third or fourth time that, that I actually got let past the front. Like there's a front office, like a reception area. <laughs> yeah. And they actually let me into the publisher's office. It was a third or fourth time. And I walked in and, and Carla Wallace, who runs the place, she still does. And she had her back turned to me like in a chair, like kind of in a movie. I mean, honestly, she had her back turned to me in this little chair. And I walk in and the back of her head's just looking at like they had a big stereo. Mm -hmm. It was 2009. And she flips around and she's like, <laughs> been listening to your CD. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what'd you think? And she goes, tell me how you're any different than Dirk Bentley. And I had some spiel that I made up on the spot that was bullshit, but it was like, well, you're just saying that because I'm not Southern. You know, you're used to Southern country music. Dirk Bentley's from the West. He's from Arizona. You know, it's just a little bit different flavor. You know, I'm from Kansas and uh, I don't feel like you're giving me an honest shot because I'm not saying truck y'all, hee-haw, bullshit. <laughs> and she's like, you know, uh, she got kind of offended and she's like, well, let's listen again. And she, she played it and then, um, She's like, you know, okay, this is actually, okay, here's a guitar. Can you play me a song? Just you play a song on the guitar. If somebody asked me to do that right now, I'd shit my pants. <laughs> at the time, I had so much confidence as a 23-year-old at the time. I was like, yeah, let's do it. So I played her a song on the guitar, and she's like, okay, I got to call, call my business partner. She called him over. That was at 10 o'clock in the morning, but 2 in the afternoon, I was signing papers. Wow. And, wow. and ended up there. And, and that's the same one I've been with for 13, 14 years. So um, crazy. Yeah. Is that how that works usually? Like some singers go from place to place to place and just 
It did back then. I think nowadays it's more like what's on TikTok and what's hot, and then you get a call from or a D. I don't know how it works to, today, to be honest with you. I was like, I feel like I was in the last group of people who did it, the organic door-to-door place. There was maybe a few years that happened after that, but man, everything has changed so much now. It's like, what are people's TikTok numbers? Yeah. But um, yeah, just persistence. So what was it, what does it mean to get signed by, like with a record deal? Like, is that a salary plus royalties or how does that actually work? I feel like most people outside of music business don't understand what that is. Yeah, so Big Yellow Dog was just a publishing company at that mm-hmm. point. So they just own all the rights to your, your writing. Okay. So what you're writing. And so I wrote with them for um, five years before I got my first actual record deal. Okay. And they put, they helped me release like an album, like an independent album on their quasi label at the time in 2012 um, and but then I got signed with Sony Records in 2015 and that was like a legitimate record deal yeah. where you have a full staff and a giant building where you walk in and everything you can picture guys with the suit on that are telling you well I think you should do that <laughs> and uh, I did that in 2015 I was at that label for two two and a half years it fizzled there, there was a lot I mean this is this could be a two hour story but I, I'll I'll, uh, I'll cut you, spare you the details. And then I went back to Big Yellow Dog, and that's where I released the Comeback Road album, the one you see on the wall. And that was just through Big Yellow Dog, my publishing company, that acted as my label. And then that got me signed to Atlantic Records in New York. Um, and so signed with Atlantic for on a single deal in New York for Better Off Gone, which is a song kind of people know it, but you might not know it, but that's a song that kind of got me going. You know, like... Out of, outside of the Great Plains, you know. Better Off Gone is one of my favorite songs. I, Better Off Gone, Grew Apart, and uh, Albuquerque, and then, I oh, should you have one about, uh, I'll forget the name, but anyways, those four, they, those are the ones where I found you, and I'm like, I don't know who this guy is, but like these songs are really good. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, so, and then I did that single deal, Atlantic, there, there's so many stories in there, I could tell you that are just kind of weird how I ended up where I'm at, but... Um, after that ended, then I kind of went back to Big Yellow Dog, and they, they've been acting as my label since 2019, 2020. So, yeah. So being a full-time artist, what does that look like? Like, what is day-to-day? What is normal for you in a year? It just depends on how heavy we're touring. You know, like, 2019 was crazy because that's really, like, so the Comeback Road album came out in 2017, and then the single Better Off Gone really didn't start hitting until like the end of 2018. So there was a year of lag time where it was like, is anything really going to pop off this record? So you think a single comes out and boom, you're off to the races. It yeah. didn't happen like that. And so that's when I, when I put a song out first week, I don't even look to see how it's performing because I know that a year, year and a half from now, it could start getting traction. And that's what happened with Better Off Gone. And so... Uh, end of 2018, it was like that's when Atlantic kind of stepped in and they're like, okay, we're going to push this thing up the charts. And then next thing you know, we're playing Germany and we're selling out in the UK and we're playing, sold out West Coast Tour. And then we're playing the East Coast and then we're back to the Midwest and then it's back to the Germany. You know, and then you're really going. And uh, that song was really popping. We were in like top 30 on country radio. It was streaming in the top 20 in the US and Canada. And then, um, and then COVID happened, you know, and then it's like, it kind of just all of our running around and, and crazy stuff kind of halted. So when you're touring like that, your day to day is like recovering from being gone and then packing, doing your laundry and packing and going back. I'm still trying to figure out what being an artist looks like when you're not touring that heavily. Um, but I still tour a lot, but um, it's mostly songwriting. It's mostly like, you know, and I hate to say it, but you know, looking at, so are, are we getting enough? info out there that we have new music out, you know, um, stuff like that. But yeah. So when, when you tour, I mean, are you, where's the bus come from? Who's driving the bus? How far are you riding the bus? When do you fly? Like logistically, how do you decide all this and what's that look like? Well, I got teams of people that, that I pay, like, so I have a management company okay. and, and so they, they kind of help out with like, okay, Hey, you're doing this full band tour, you know, um, 
Well, so I, there's actually, I got kind of lucky because there's a bus company 15 minutes from here. Oh, nice. In wow. North Wichita called Village. And I didn't even know it. I moved, I'd lived here for two years and I was leasing a bus from Granger Smith in Austin, <laughs> Texas. Oh my gosh. And so I, Granger, and he was nicest guy in the world, right? He was leasing me a bus for like, I'm sure he didn't make a penny off of it. <laughs> um, so we were in Granger's bus for two, one I mean, it seemed like every tour we did for a year to two years, we were in Granger's, one of his old buses. And then it was like a couple Nashville buses, but then I figured out there was a bus company right here. And they're like a high-end bus company. Like, Jamie Johnson uses them, Larry the Cable Guy, uh, Mary Morris. <laughs> Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> like, everybody's using them. Uh, Pat Benatar uses them, and, and they're right there. So I kind of reached out to him in over 2020, and, and they're like, yeah, so when you start touring again, we, we got you. And so I started using this bus company here. Um, but yeah, you have people who, like, organize your your day-to-day, -day, your kind of tours, if you want to pay them. Um, I'm more independent, so I do a lot of the logistics on my own, and I'll sit here a lot of the times at my computer and, you know, strategize where the bus is going to go, getting driver rooms, all that crap, you know, um, just boring, like, business stuff. But, yeah. So you, you have a tour coming up. How do you figure out, decide where you're going to be playing at? Uh, so I have, that's the thing is like, uh, people, you post something on Instagram, they're like, come to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'd love to come to Philadelphia. Um, but I don't know the analytics like my management company does or my agent does at UTA in Nashville. So UTA's LA based a uh, booking agency. And then there's an, uh, a branch in Nashville and that's where my guy is. And, and they look and they see, you know, where are your streams? You know, where are you selling tickets? they can look at all that stuff and go, okay, I think we can get you into, I don't know, let's call it Jurgles in Pittsburgh. I'm just throwing shit at the wall. <laughs> yeah, we've played that. Okay. We can get you into Jurgles in Pittsburgh and you can put 400 people in there. Okay. We're going to start there. That's when you're doing your Northeast run and we'll just kind of branch. We'll go to Ram's head in Baltimore, whatever. And so they, they are the ones sitting there like strategizing that stuff and they'll get an offer from a club like, okay, we can do this guarantee, you know? Um, and so I kind of felt like I was being passive in that part of the game, like waiting for someone to throw offers at me. And so what I started doing is I put a link on my website and I was like, if you want me to come play somewhere, fill out this form and put a number, I don't care what the number is, 2000 bucks, you want me to come play acoustic in your shed? <laughs> I'll do it. And so I have a small trailer, uh, not the big bus trailer you see out back there, but just a small trailer. I'll put my piano in it, I'll put my guitar in it, put some merch in it, and I'll go play these sheds. And then you can go there and you can meet people and you can be like, hey, we're trying to work this market. You play their little birthday party or whatever you're doing, but we want to go play the 500 seater down the road. Cool. We'll spread the word and then you can tell your agent, hey, I think we can put. I think we can get at least half full in X, Y, and Z place in, you know, Buffalo, New York. And so I started trying to supplement their analytics with my, like, just field research of, you know, letting people book me at their barns and houses and whatever. So it's kind of a hodgepodge of just whatever you can drum up. So then going to germany in uk international what was that like i'm sure it was a bunch of travel a lot of fans like is that surreal to you it was cool man the first night we played in the europe or outside of the uk we've been to the uk a good bit but we went to berlin and we opened for uh keith urban there like just acoustic guitar that's you know? crazy yeah. it was cool it was really cool and it was like a like a in the round it was me and Lindsay l and lauren jenkins and so we played like acoustic songs and then um keith came on and played a full band set after that but like it was really weird because at the time we had a song popping with better off gone so you know you had several thousand german folks in there and they all knew every single word <laughs> the better off gone and they're singing i didn't even have to, have to play right you know they're just so excited because country music is fairly american country music is fairly new to germany now and so it was at the time when we went. 
And so it was really surreal. And then we were able to go from there and string together Munich and, and Hamburg and Cologne and, uh, uh, gosh, what was the other place? Um, I'm in Kolmbach. We played there. Um, the Mercedes Benz truck dealership in Kolmbach paid for our music video and we got to go play a castle in Kolmbach, Germany. It was just great. It was, yeah, absolutely surreal. That's insane. Yeah. Wow. So you'd mentioned like, Luke Bryan, you've got Granger Smith, you've got all these different people. What is it like getting to meet them and to have these interactions with them? Because those are like really big names and that must feel like progress. Like you're making your way up that list and you definitely have. You don't ever want to like bank like your progress on the friends you have, right? Like, right. And, and I'm not a good, I'm such in my own world and not in a narcissistic way. I just, I don't want to bug people. And so, like, if I make friends, like, for instance, Granger is somebody who's been over the top nice to me. He's more times than he had to have been. Um, always reached out. You know, I was his first podcast when they started on Yee Radio. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, they always play my stuff on Yee Radio. And, and, but I don't ever want to bug somebody. I'm just like, ah, I don't want to get in their way and feel like I'm trying to climb, you know, stair step my way over the top of people. Yeah. You don't want to use them. Right. And so... I, it it's cool to meet other people that have had that kind of success and i've not i've not mastered the art of like becoming their friend and just you know being in their corner um but it's always cool like dirk Bentley was one who was just from the get-go was always like super supportive um you know he would you know every time that we'd be open for dirks he'd come out and watch our show and then from or, like really early like 2012 he came out uh, and he was like, hey, man, uh, the Sunflower song that you played, that was really good. That's that's your best work yet. Keep going. Keep doing that. It's like, you didn't have to do that. <laughs> you didn't have to come tell me anything. You could have sat on your bus, you know. So, man, it's really cool. And I try to remember that when there's other young artists that, you know, might think I'm somebody or whatever. It's like, go give them a compliment. Like, find something you really like about them. Find something authentic and, and genuine and go and go tell them. Because that, that is so huge, man. Like, you forget how much those little, like, words of affirmation from somebody who you look up to, you forget how far that can carry you. Well, it's, it's that encouragement. Like, you mentioned you had all the times where you got dropped or things didn't work out. I could think when I was starting the podcast a couple of years ago, and it was like, when you're really questioning what you're doing and you're maybe not having success and someone says something nice that you respect, it changes everything. Like, that's really kind Absolutely. of, it pulls you through. Yeah, absolutely, man. Because, you know, when you don't get that, you might think, like, oh, they thought I sucked. Oh, what did I screw up? You know? But that one little sentence of, like, hey, man, you crushed it tonight. Or, hey, I really like this song on this record. Or whatever. It's like, you do? You know, it's hard to believe. <laughs> You're like, I don't suck? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you go out and open up for other people, you know, and they don't say anything. I'm sure Hank Jr. doesn't know me from Adam, but I've opened for him, like, eight times. You know, and he probably didn't even see the show, but well, not that he has to, but let's just say Hank Jr. came out and said, Hey man, that, what's that last song you played? I really like that. And dude, I would have been, I could have lived off that for a year. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? That confidence and that changes yeah. everything too. Cause when you show up with confidence, I mean like it's contagious. Mm -hmm. I love that. Uh, we had a couple people, I did an Instagram poll earlier for people to ask questions. So I'm going to pull up just a couple of them to ask you here. Sure. I think it was pretty cool. You had some good responses to it, for sure. Yeah. All right. First one. Have you ever had a moment that made you stop for a second and think, did this really just happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've had a lot of those. Uh, Grand Ole Opry, for sure, both times. Um, getting asked to play the Opry was crazy. And then we played it one time with Emmylou Harris, and then we're, like, backstage, and, like, Emmylou was coming up and taking pictures with my dad and uh that was crazy and my kids are like photobombing in the background <laughs> that was cool um leanne rhymes asked me to go to my first time in europe was with leanne she asked me to come do an acoustic show with her oh that's awesome so i got to do um scotland and in all of well most of the uk with with leanne and um Got to go out acoustic, and then the very last show I did with her, I can't remember, it might have been in Birmingham or, or uh, I think it was Birmingham, and, and I walked off stage, and she 
met me at the side stage and she's like you're doing so good and then she grabbed me by the arm and she walked me out on the stage and, and in front of the sold out like symphony arena and she's like hey this is logan can we get a big round of applause he's been opening for me this whole tour and it was just like you don't have to do that you know it was that was very surreal i'm like in england and people are screaming yeah. songs that i i wrote you know here in small town kansas it was yeah, those moments are crazy. I can't even imagine. Uh, what What's the most amount of people you've played in front of? Uh, most amount of people, uh, maybe Stagecoach California, or I'm um, trying to think. We did one in uh, Maryland with Eric Church was pretty big. I think probably f we played an early slot in Stagecoach, but I think there was still probably 40,000 people there. Holy Dude, gosh. what is that like with 40,000 people looking at you? When they don't know your songs, it's crazy because you're like, you're on a jumbotron, you know, on both sides and you're playing and you're like, oh, my guitar's not out of tune. I hope I'm not singing out of pitch, you know. They don't know the song. Like, Why are they not singing along right now? Right, right, yeah. That's always nerve wracking. Um, but man, it's, uh, yeah, the, the, the bigger crowds are more fun. You know, you have more freedom to kind of like make some mistakes that you, in front of a smaller crowd, they're going to pick up every, every mistake you make. Do you have anything that you do to like calm your nerves or do you even get nervous when you perform anymore? I always get nervous. I, I don't think there's anything I can do to not get nervous, but you know, the best way I ever heard it said was like, I think Tom Petty said it. He's like, if you don't get nervous before you go on stage and play, there's something not plugged in. <laughs> and it's probably time to hang it up. Dude, I always get nervous and like sometimes uncontrollably so where I'm like, I don't think I can play the show. Man. I don't think I can do it. What am I going to do? I got to go to the bathroom and splash cold water on my face. Like, do I got to take a shot of Maker's Mark? What do I need to do here? Drink some tequila. Um, that drinking is never the answer. Um, <laughs> Except when you're nervous. You yeah, gotta play the show. yeah, drinking is never the answer, but it, a nice shot of tequila really takes the edge off. There it is. Uh, yeah, I'm always nervous. So, oh shoot, I just dropped. What else did I say? We'll go back to another question. I'm sure I'll remember in a minute. What did you think? Okay, so we had a buddy who went to your... Um, one of your more recent concerts. He wants to know, what did you think of Jewel, Kansas? Jewel, Kansas? Yeah. Oh my God, what a blast. <laughs> yeah, we went out. So this is one of the the submissions I allow on the website where people can uh, submit to have a, a show, a private show. Doesn't have to be private, but like coming to my small town bar in Jewel, Kansas, someplace that my agency would never put me. They don't even know that place exists. And I love going to the small towns in rural America. You know, I don't care what state or Canada, whatever. It's like there are so many places off the beaten path that your agency's never going to book you. And so all these people are having to, find, okay, well, Jewel, Kansas, the closest concert is probably going to be Lincoln, Nebraska, or Omaha, or Denver. There's no one playing out there, mm -hmm. you know? And so. The cool thing with the online submission is that you can go hit these untouched areas and play to people that otherwise would have to drive hours to see you. And that, I just bring guitars and I bring a piano, no musicians besides myself. And I think we had five, 600 people in a 300 cap room and it was like oh, insane wow. and everybody was smoke. I mean, you know, it's not about people being drunk, you know, you know, that's not what I'm saying, but like everybody was everybody was there to have a good time yeah and it was uh it was incredible jewel was awesome it was like so far the highlight of my solo acoustic tour were they singing all the words with you oh yeah you could just stop singing and playing and they'd sing right back to oh me. that's such a good yeah, time it was great do you have any like close concerts coming up we have may 18th in uh, Wichita at the Wave. Okay. Um, and then we have uh, Manhattan in May, um, Ralston, Nebraska, May 4th, Fort Smith, Arkansas, May 5th, Columbia, Missouri on the 6th. That's about the close. And there's a Hayes, Kansas date some, sometime, maybe May 10th. Yeah. Like we need to get out to one of them. Yeah. yeah that'd be yeah. a good time. We'd love anytime. You guys let me know. Okay. Jump on the bus, come hang, <laughs> get a pre show tequila, whatever. Dude. <laughs> help calm my nerves. Hey, I'm going to go. That's what I was going to ask. We were talking about the nerves. Have you ever actually had to cancel a show because you were so nervous? I've never had to cancel a show because I was so nervous, but I have absolutely destroyed one of my own shows because I was so nervous. Oh, man. And that's the worst feeling. Um, I, 
so my uncle Billy Mize, his, he was the like godfather of the Bakersfield sound. So he, you know, Buck Owens, Merle Haggard, all those guys, you know, that started the Bakersfield sound. My uncle Billy was actually the guy that kind of pioneered that that whole thing. Really? Yeah. And then he ended up playing. He kind of went off the rails. Two of his sons died. It's a really sad story. There's a there's a documentary about him called Billy Mize and the Bakersfield Sound. My uh, cousin Joe Saunders made, but um, he ended up being Merle's steel player for 17 years. And um, so the documentary is crazy. But he, uh, I got to play his 80th birthday party at the Buck Owens Crystal Palace in Baker Bakersfield, and I made it through that. I drank quite a bit before, <laughs> but Merle Haggard was sitting at the oh man at the oh, table right in front of where I played, and I had to get up and play a song of Billy's. And before we went on stage, they they put a video wall up, and uh, they said, "What's your favorite country song of all time?" Somebody interviewing him said, "Merle Haggard was like, I think one of my favorite country songs of all time was Who Will Buy the Wine by Billy Mize. Oh, no. And then it cut off, and then they go, and here you sing Who Will Buy the Wine by Billy oh, Mize. Oh, his, his nephew, Logan Mize. And I was shitting my pants all the way <laughs> to the stage, and I got up there, and I was able to play it. My dad and I were drinking beers at the table, and I was like, here we go. <laughs> so I went back. Will Hogue asked me to go on tour with him on the West Coast, and it was my first or second time back at the Crystal Palace in Bakersfield. And for whatever reason, we had this long talk about my uncle and the Bakersfield sound, and I worked myself up into a tizzy, like, oh my God, I'm not worthy of being here. Like, I can't believe, like, I'm part of this thing that's historic. And for whatever reason, I got out on stage, solo acoustic at the Crystal Palace, and I like, froze up. Like, I got so nervous, I like just, I couldn't even I hit a note, you know? And I had to stop the show, and I kind of sat there, and I was like, just give me a second, just give me a second, you know? And I sat there and some really nice guy, some big burly guy with a beard, you know, came walking out and he's like, just take this, you'll be fine. <laughs> Gave me a shot of Jack Daniels. Thank you so much, man. I'm, I, you know, I'm sorry. I normally don't do this, but man, it, I got worked up. I couldn't even play the show. Wow. So how did the fans react whenever that kind of happened? Uh, I think they were confused. You know, I think they were like, uh, what's going on? You know, but I was like, man, there's so much history here and, and uh, there was just so much going on in my head. I couldn't yeah. get past, I couldn't even think straight, you know. And uh, but I was able to pull off the rest of the show. And Will Hogue was sitting in the in the balcony, like watching. And he's like, "It's all right, man. You know that shit happens, and it's fine. You'll get past it." So that's gotta feel good that he said that. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. Uh, have you heard of Bailey Zimmerman, country artist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had recently a concert that didn't go so well for him, and the fans were relentless going after him. And uh, I was wondering, like, I mean, the fans are obviously there for a good time, but as an artist, you can't really do much about that. Like, sometimes you just have an off night, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and there's so much out of control. Like, if you don't have a good front of house sound engineer, like, you could you could pull off a perfect show. And, you know, you got cans on like this, they fit in your ear. You can go up there and play a great show and walk off stage high-fiving your bandmates. And then somebody goes, dude, that was bad. <laughs> You're like what? And then you hear something back that somebody recorded from from out in front, and the sound guy has just butchered your sound, you know. So the the number one most important thing I've kind of learned is like, when you're gonna hire sound people to run sound for your show, you gotta hire somebody that knows what the hell they're doing, because they can take a a perfect show and they can butcher it for your audience, and then they walk away going they sucked, yeah. you know. So what does like a sound guy actually do? Is they have is it an audio board or like what does that job entail? Yeah, so like I bring my own soundboard. I have an M thirty two, which is pretty small. It's not like a fancy anything. It'd be like bottom of the not bottom of the barrel, but it's like pretty a humble soundboard. <laughs> but we have all of our channels and inputs on there. And you know, we have thirty I think we max it out at thirty two. So you have all the drum mics, you know, you got seven eight drum mics you got the vocal mic piano guitar everything and like getting that perfect balance of vocals sitting out front mm -hmm. and then the bass and the drums and if like let's say they're like oh i'm getting too much bottom end feedback they pull all the bottom end out then it's just all guitar and vocal or the vocals buried behind a guitar they can totally screw your whole show that's a lot to handle though. it's it's a lot so you gotta have somebody that knows what they're doing
and we've been lucky enough that uh, my, my buddy Troy Milner, who runs uh, Sound for Bruce Springsteen, has been out with us this past year. But he's back out with Bruce this year, so we're starting from scratch, looking for a front of house. So if there's any front of house engineers out there, uh, we need you. <laughs> hey, John, that's your department. That's yeah. me. That's all me. <laughs> we sat here for like 10 minutes before the episode started trying to get the audio yeah. all set up. And we're kind of looking at each other like, do you know audio? Do you know audio? None of us know audio. Yeah, no. Me included. <laughs> Uh, all right, back to the questions. There's one more I think that I wanted to pull up. <clears throat> the scotch is fantastic. Oh, do you need more? No, I'm, yeah, I'm more. good. I'm still finishing this one up. But it's good, though. Yeah, good. It's I'm really good. Dig it. it's, I love it. Balvenie is great. We're drinking Balvenie scotch. Yeah, let's get that sponsorship going. <laughs> uh, so the question was, why did you end up heading back from Nashville to Kansas? Oh, good question. Um, man, it's so... We lived, we, we kind of jumped around from place to place, um, my wife and I, I met my wife in 2009 in Nashville, she's from Andale where we're at right now, and um, we never met when we lived here, but we, we had been in several close run-ins over the years growing up, um, met her in Nashville, and when we first started dating, one of the things we said was like, man, how cool would it be to be like, you know, successful in music and then move back to where we grew up and raise a family there. And um, it was kind of a fleeting thought, maybe like casual conversation that happened two or three times. And then there was one day where my daughter was going to preschool in Brentwood, um, 20 minutes north of where we lived. And my son was going to kindergarten, another 20 minutes south of where we lived. Oh, so a 40 minute oh. difference and traffic's terrible. Yeah. And I got, you know, I was out on tour with my friend Cam and she, my mom had called me in the morning and she's like, I just got diagnosed with uh, colon cancer. Oh, you know, no. And it's whatever. And we were just like maxed out with driving kids. And we're like, should we just raise our kids in Kansas? And I went and talked to Carla Wallace, who runs Big Yellow Dog and who's been my publisher for, we've talked about her a little bit in the show. And she's like, why don't you just move back to Kansas? <laughs> I don't care. I'll keep you. You know, we're going to keep making records we're gonna keep you know doing our thing and I was like really you think it'd be cool she's like yeah do your thing live your life so I went home and told Jill and she's like all right we left that weekend and we came back um that was so quick yeah that's uh, yeah <laughs> left our house in Nashville sitting there and then my brother-in-law was my merch manager at the time so he was living in Nashville I just hey move into the house take care of it we moved back here moved in with my wife's parents just a couple miles south of here Tried out and rolled our son here in school in kindergarten, uh, daughter in preschool, and tried it out for six months. And we're like, "Man, this is way better for <laughs> life. There's no traffic. Yeah, you know, we're two minutes. If anything happens, we're two minutes from everything. Yeah. And um, by the end of six months, we sold our house and started building here. And it was just, um, it made sense. And I was also able to be with my mom in the last few years of her life. And and uh, be close and now I get to play golf with my dad yeah and that never would have happened if I would have said Nashville you know we were so far away and there's been a lot of family like you know people passing and graduations and marriages and and weddings and and uh just stuff that you're gonna miss out on it's such a different style of life like John and I were just in Nashville last week we did an interview with a um, former NFL football player and then we would go out to the bars in Nashville and like it's a lot of fun but it takes forever to get downtown. It's so busy. There's so much going on. 40 bucks to park. Oh, yeah, seriously. <laughs> and Kansas is such a slower lifestyle, which that's good if that's what you like, but it's like a much better pace in my opinion. So much slower. You know, I, like I golfed this morning with my dad. We've been talking about it. And I, I had to drive back here to do the podcast, and I was like, I took dirt roads the whole way. I was kind of cruising, listening to a little podcast, and... And I was like, God, if I was in Nashville, I'd be fighting traffic the whole way, yeah. like white nothing, trying to get back in time, you know? Yeah. It was just, it, I love it here. And yeah, it's March and there's 30 mile an hour wind, which sucks. But come April, it's going to be beautiful and we'll be fine. Well, this place is, Andale is far more country than Nashville. Like we were driving and there was the pavement in front of us and all of a sudden it was dirt road. And I was like, John, this is, this is BFE Kansas. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. We, you're getting out here now. And, and it's, uh. And this is pretty civilized compared to most of Kansas. You know, we're close enough to Wichita and close enough to Hutchison, but um, 
Yeah, it's it's perfect, man. It's population 900. There's a bar across the street, which, by the way, if you guys are hungry for dinner, they're open at 5. I don't know what time it is. But, uh, <laughs> it's 5.09, man. Uh, they got a good steak over there. So. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to pop over. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. yeah. That's a good time. Uh, okay, I had another question. This was just kind of off the cuff that we were talking about on the way over. So you're married. You've got a family, right? What is it like writing songs that are, a lot of them are about, like, heartbreak and very, like, serious, like, relationship stuff? Well, you've got a family, and it's, like, a much different situation. Well, songwriting-wise, you know, you grow up and you go through, like, all the, like, angst of teenage heartbreak and, and all of the... All that stuff lingers, man, you know, and if my wife writes a breakup song, it's like, yeah, you've lived it, you know, and it's so relatable. People seem to dig it. And it's the easiest thing. If I started writing songs about um, my wife and I got in a fight over the socks, dirty socks <laughs> or my kids homework's overdue because I didn't help them finish it, our mortgages, you know, higher than we wanted it to be like all that. It's just so simple is better. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. simple is always better. So um, it's so easy to draw off emotions that are raw and real and everybody can relate to. Everybody's been through it. And, you know, you dig too much into, uh, you know, the grown up. And I think, I think a lot, sorry, I just snapped it up a bit. <laughs> I think the, uh, the grown up, like being a dad, being a husband of 13 years now, that stuff it shows up a lot more on this new record that's about to come out, yeah. for sure. But it's so much more tricky to do. It's a lot easier to just draw on, like, you know, late teen, early twenties emotion of like the the breakup and the and also you know every time you know you get in a fight with your spouse, it's like yep. those things come yeah. right back up. You know, it's easy to draw on those. So when you write uh, "Grew Apart" and "Better Off Gone," I feel like those are probably my two favorite songs to this point. I gotta stop you, and I, uh, I didn't write either of those songs. Really? Yeah, yeah, and I'll elaborate on that if you want me to. Yeah, go for it. Okay, uh, so as a songwriter, I, I grew up thinking, you know, you have to write all your own songs. Right. And um, when I when I signed at Sony Records, I got uh, paired together with Paul Worley, kind of on my own accord. But Paul Worley's a legendary producer in Nashville. He produced the Dixie Chicks. He mm -hmm. produced Big and Ranch. He produced, uh, God, I mean, countless stuff that you've heard. Um, legendary producer. And he's like, hey, man, you got to stop writing on all your own songs. And I was like, why would I do that? He's like, because that's not your strength. Your strength is you're a communicator. Really? Yeah. He's like, your strength isn't even as a singer. He's like, you can sing pretty good. And you can play guitar pretty good. And you can write pretty good. But what your strength is, is that you can um, take a, take anything and you can emote really well, better than a lot of artists I've worked with. And that was a huge compliment. It's like, what do I do with that information? He's like, find the best songs. He's like, try to write your whole record and then go look for songs that beat your entire record. Wow. So I started doing that and I would be like, okay, record's done. I wrote the whole thing. He's like... Now go look for songs. And so I started doing that and taking them seriously. And I would get through the recording process and be like, I only have four songs left I wrote because I wrote Dang. better songs. Because the best songwriters in the world are in Nashville, Tennessee, yeah. and they're writing every day. And they're not making their own records. They're literally writing for artists. And I'm an artist. Why am I not taking advantage of this? Yeah. And you walk up to him and you're like, hey, man, I love this song that you wrote. Somebody to thank. And he's like, please record. You know, not that he fucking needs it. Yeah. Josh Keir has written countless hits for Carrie Underwood, Luke Bryan, whatever. And he, he goes, please, I would love you to have this song. And you're like, really? You don't care? No, I, I would love you to sing it. Wow. And then I go in the studio and I'm like, damn, I can't pull this off. And so that's my biggest strength. And I've kind of figured that out over the years. It's like, there's, there's so many areas I feel not confident in. Things I feel like I haven't quite mastered. That's the one area where, like, if, if I go into a studio in front of a microphone, any song that I believe in, I feel like I'm probably going to be able to do it better than the next guy. And that's been my one strength. So Better Off Gone was that song. Grew Apart was that song. And they were both written by Donovan Woods. I had no idea. I always figured the artist wrote the songs. That makes a lot of sense. Usually. Though. I mean, like, I try to write most of my songs. Yeah. 
But man, if there's a song that beats all the songs I wrote, I'm not going to hesitate to go sing it. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I guess to my, back to my question though, regardless if you wrote the song or not, once you released it, you sang it, you knew that like, man, I got this message across really well. In your head, did you know, man, this is going to blow up, this is going to be a big hit? No. Or you, when you release, you have no idea. It's just kind of... No, I wrote Donovan Woods a letter after I recorded uh, Better Off Gone. And, and uh, I was like, hey man, I know I'm like kind of a more of an unknown, like young artist. You probably want a bigger cut. I understand that. I was like, but I'm going to do everything in my power. And I did to make this song a hit for you. I didn't feel that it was going to be a hit. I just believed in, I believed in it. I heard it back and I was like, man, this guy sounds like he believes this and he lived it, you know? And so, uh, so I wrote that letter to him. And then of course, you know, that was the song that kind of took off and, and, uh, made waves and got my career going for, for the most part. And so from there, it was like, I feel like I developed a relationship with him where he's like, I'm going to send you another song. So he sent me grew apart. Well, now it's a bit about to be my second gold single. So he just sent me two more and I have two more down in the woods coming out songs coming out in the next upcoming project. Wow. And I look, that's exciting. Nothing, nothing that's awesome. against Donovan Woods. I love Donovan Woods. I think he's one of the greatest songwriters in the game right now, but I hope my songs beat his. On the next record. <laughs> you know, I hope my singles yeah. that I wrote win, but they probably won't. Donovan's probably will. You yeah. know, I, there's no way to tell. Is the next album, is that going to be Bloodline? Because I saw you just put out the song Bloodline. Is that yeah. what the, the album e be? The EP will probably be called Bloodline, and that'll be five songs. But then the full record will follow. Right now we have 15 recorded. I think it'll probably end up being closer to 18 uh, when it's said and done. But I don't know. if It probably won't be called Bloodline. Okay. Um, I'll probably find a different title. It might just be LM. I don't know. <laughs> might as well. Yeah. So when do you expect that to come out, the entire... I'm hoping by July because I want to start working on a new record after that. I already have kind of some other irons in the fire for new stuff. So that's really exciting. I hope so, man. We, yeah, it's just once you start working on a project, you kind of feel like you, you've sunk the production, you know, okay, I know we're using this drummer. I know what sound we're going for sonically. It's like, okay, boom, I got that. I can put all that stuff in this can. Now I'm working on the next thing. It's just, I think you have to be that way a little bit, you know? Um, the second you stop thinking about what's next, I feel like you're kind of like fighting an uphill battle. Yeah, you're already behind. Yeah. So, John and I like to listen, I would say, if there's an innovator's curve, right? That's the people, the early adopters, you've got the mm -hmm. laggards the other side of it. I would say we're probably more on the early adopter side. We like listening to new artists trying mm -hmm. to find what's coming up next. Mm -hmm. Do you have any guys, in your opinion, that we should be looking out for that you think are got some good stuff coming? Artist-wise, songwriter-wise, like what? Either way. Either way. Either way, yeah. One of my favorite guys right now is Colton Venner. Okay. Uh, um, I think he's probably, he's one of the, I've recorded uh, Albuquerque, he wrote. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he wrote a song on the upcoming record called Last Hometown. Him and Donovan wrote it together. But uh, Colton Venner is just absolutely, I think, going to be the next big songwriter. Um in town uh brandy montana i always love everything he does and he's been one of my best buddies since like 2010 um he had an artist career for a while um, i don't know if you, any of his stuff he had a really cool um few singles that dropped on universal and then he put an independent record out um god i love that lacy k booth thing, mm -hmm. that um dive bar song yeah I'm like, god that's so it good. is such a good song yeah jenna paulette's badass mm -hmm. i love her um, everything she puts out is pretty fire. Um, um, I mean, there's other genre stuff that I can think about, but as far as in the country landscape, those come to mind. Um, I mean, I love, um, I love everything Lainey Wilson is doing. Obviously she doesn't need any promo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, she's doing just fine. <laughs> she's doing just fine. Yeah. There's so many, there's so many really good ones right now that I, I love their stuff. And um, I still love Wade Bowen. Every time Wade Bowen puts a record out, I'm like, dude, there's no skips on this. No. You know? <laughs> is your wife an artist too? Yeah, she is. So what's yeah. that like? It's great. She's a great songwriter. Okay. So we write together a lot. Um, and she's honestly, I think she's a better songwriter than I am. And she's a bit, much better singer than I am. Mm. So, um, we've been writing, she comes in here, we write, once or twice a week together and um we'll write on zoom with with nashville writers and stuff and, and everyone's always like what are you doing you know like 
she needs a publishing deal worse than you do, you know? Yeah. She's really good. Um, and we have a duo project coming out. I think our first single, we're trying to put our first single out in July, July 31st, which is our 13th anniversary. Oh, that's, so, that, that is really cool. Yeah, I think it'll be yeah. fun, man. I, I really want that to take off. I, my golden dream would be to be like playing guitar mm -hmm. in a band with her and singing background vocals, but um, we'll see what happens. So It'd be so cool for like husband-wife combination blow up. You guys are touring together and you guys are like oh, together. Oh, that's the ultimate dream. Yeah, she's my best buddy. So like we, you know, we're half the time when I get to the studio to write songs, like it might have half been stolen from a conversation we had that morning, you know, and it's more fun to write songs with her because it's not the same old run-of-the-mill like country song like it's something different with a new perspective and and uh she's influenced a lot of my writing so yeah she's great do you feel like your kids are showing any signs of being musically gifted uh maybe a little bit my daughter she's always writing songs okay yeah. wow you yeah. started early yeah so she told me that she's told me forever she wants to be either an actress or a song or a singer mm -hmm. and uh, she's writing songs a ton but the other day so brunin's two doors down it's a uh, like a country restaurant, okay. biscuits and gravy. Oh, nice. She told me last week that she just wants to work at Brunin's, so which that's cool with me too. Yeah. So, <laughs> she's like, I don't think I want to be a singer anymore. I think I just want to work at Brunin's. She's eight. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to love that. It's let's do that. So it's gonna be really interesting to see where she actually ends up. <laughs> right. Right. Now she's good. She'll probably be better, probably be better than me and Joe both. So less the hope is apparent. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. As we start to wrap up, John, do you have anything? My main question coming in was, um, so you throw out an album, right? And we, we kind of hit on this, I guess, a little bit, but, you know, do you have one or two songs that you're like, okay, these are bangers, or is it the whole thing's bangers, and then you, it's like one or two <laughs> just, like, pop off? You know what I mean? My goal has always been, so we've, you know, like, talked about, like, for me, I feel like my biggest strength is in cutting records. Like I, you know, all the other things you got to do. The one thing I have to do is make records. And I feel like that's the one thing that I feel the most confident at. And so when I go to make a record, I don't want any skips. You know, I don't want there to be any song that you go, eh, okay, that was a good try. I want every song to be hit you in the face. And I don't even try to go like, well, we've already done this vibe. Let's do a different one. It's like, did that vibe work great? Cool. Do three more of those. It doesn't bother me to kind of step and repeat if I find something I love because I just can't get enough of it because the song is only three and a half minutes. Yeah. Sometimes that not, that's not enough for me. Like if I listen to one of my favorite bands and the three and a half minutes go by, I'm like, I just want to hear, hear that song again. What if they made three more of those, you know? So I'm trying to make the best record possible. Um, so now one or two songs I feel like get you started and it gets your motor running a little bit, but I definitely don't want to bank a record on one or two songs. I want every single one to be great. And that goes back to finding outside songs. It's like, yeah, you can try to write all of them, but what if your buddy wrote one that beats your songs? Add it in, put the best group together, you know? That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, how does duration of a song affect it? Like, are you always trying to get to that three and a half minute mark? Is Does it show that like a two minute song will perform worse than that or a five minute song performs worse? Like, how's that factor in? Man, I'm just, my, I'm so influenced by three minute pop songs like Tom Petty, Sean Mellon, Camp Elton John. Right. Like, I love Southern Rock, man. I love the Allman Brothers. I love Leonard Skinner. I love, you know, Charlie Daniels. And when they did that thing in the 70s where they were, we're going to do an eight-minute song or whatever, that's cool. Like, I, I will listen to the Allman Brothers all day long. I love it. But for me, like, you can wrap up all your thoughts and all your melodies and all your vibe in about three to three and a half minutes and then move on to the next thing. I mean, if it goes any longer than that, it kind of feels like you're showing off, you know? <laughs> like. What's that Dickie Betts song I love uh, so much? The Allman Brothers. You know what song I'm talking about, right? It's all instrumental. I don't. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. That could go on for 15 minutes and I'd be all ears. But like, other than that, man, there's not much out there that you can do much past three and a half minutes. Well, we need like a five-minute guitar solo at the end. That's what we need you to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I only play about two or three notes in my guitar solos, so you'd get real tired. <laughs> That's what we needed to do. Next time, we're going to have you play live. 
That's right. Oh, yeah. Well, we got about 15 guitars in here. So. Yeah. There you go. Your setup here is really cool. I wanted Thank to mention you. that. Like, this is super fun. Thanks. Sorry, it's a mess back there. I know you went to the bathroom. I kind of should have cleaned up. <laughs> no, you're good, man. It's real. There's guitars stacked on the sink and, you know. Yeah. This is the life, though. Like, this is what you do. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Okay. So, as we uh, start to wrap up, where can people find you if they want to listen, connect, reach out to you? Yeah, so it's loganmize.com, M-I-Z-E, um, and then I think my Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. Uh, TikTok's loganmize85. Hopefully that gets banned soon so I don't have to post TikToks anymore. <laughs> uh, I heard it was going to. I don't know. Did They're Trump, working on it. Yeah. Did Trump get arrested today? I don't know. I heard that uh, was going not to yet. tomorrow. Yeah, it's tomorrow. <laughs> God, politics in America are fucked. I don't know. Anyway, uh, you let me have a scotch. Sorry. No, um, you did uh, yeah, man, it's all, all the, uh, Logan Mize, I think TikTok's the only one that has numbers in it, but yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, so my final question for you is looking back on this wild journey that you've been on, if you could go back to your 18, 19, 20 year old self, what advice would you offer to him? Hmm. Just be authentic, be yourself, tell the truth, you know, uh, <sighs> can, I don't know. I love the the fact. The one thing that I always go back to is like I always had like a very adventurous spirit. You know, maybe spend less time drinking beer and more time like running. <laughs> you know, maybe drink more water. Um, <laughs> you know, but like, dude, as far as the the adventure and the belief and that there there's something you can do if you put your mind to it, man. I feel like I got lucky enough to figure that out at an early age. And I've kind of landed in a spot where like it, it kind of worked out in a, in a really cool way. So, um, just, just believe in yourself, you know, like there's no right or wrong way to do anything. As long as you're treating people well, treat everybody with respect, whether they deserve it or not, it'll come back to you, you know, just be nice and believe in yourself and give yourself a break from time to time. If you're waking up and doing the work every day, and you're not sloughing off and making bad decisions every night, like, dude, where can you go wrong? You know, wake up every day and just go for it. Swing for the fence all day, every day. Logan, your story is inspiring. I really appreciate you sharing it with us. Oh, dude, thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Of course, man. Awesome. That's a wrap. That's a wrap on that one. That was a fire